Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land, and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures, and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Sandy Garasino. Hello, Jesse. Journalist with the National Observer. Welcome back. Today, Sandy, we are going to talk about, I don't know, Jody Wilson-Raybould's personality, uh, jobs, 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 pressure-cooked octopus, and everything else that has distracted us from the fact that SNC-Lavalin is actually pretty fucking evil. (laughs) We are going to talk about the Canadian government's apology to the Inuit for decades of I'm sorry, we're actually just going to keep talking about SNC-Lavalin. And we will talk about Andrew Scheer's tragic disability. He cannot hear things that are politically inconvenient for him. These all sound like really good subjects. Welcome back to the show. This episode of Shortcuts is brought to you by Nanette Oaken, Misha Gorodnitsky, Zoe Coombs, Sarah Kilshaw, Kevin Gamble, Christopher Green, Andrew Lindsay, and Brian Smith. My name is Brian, and I'm an improv teacher in Toronto. And I'm a longtime subscriber and relatively recent financial supporter of Canada Land because I love the idea of a grassroots, sustainable media organization in Canada. 
This episode is also brought to everybody, Sandy, by Audible. Audible, of course, have audiobooks, the largest library, the best performances. And I have been showing off how well-read I am in recent weeks. I have a title that I am going to uh, demonstrate my acumen today with. Um, are you familiar with the uh, author and comedian Gilbert Gottfried? No. Is this somebody really good? Should I be? I think if you heard his voice, you would recall him instantly. Okay. I'm going pretty lowbrow today. Comedian Gilbert Gottfried has a book <sighs> called Rubber Balls and Liquor. That's that's my <laughs> best attempt. And it is written and narrated by Gilbert Gottfried. Sandy, you can have 10 hours of Gilbert Gottfried <laughs> screaming in your ear with a 30-day free trial and you get your first Audible book for free. This is not a test as to how literate or well-read or sophisticated you are. This is, this is a test of how much can you endure. Can you take it? 10 hours of Gilbert Gottfried. <laughs> I got confused when I thought we were talking about the author Gilbert Gottfried, but as soon as you said the comedian Gilbert Gottfried, I snapped to attention. I know who this is. It clicked in for you. And I don't know that I could I don't know that I could take 10 hours. For my sins, I'm actually intrigued to listen to this book. There are lots of books <laughs> uh, if that is not to your taste. There is a universe of audiobooks on Audible. You can learn more at audible.ca/canada. Again, that is audible.ca/canada. I think the broader questions about where we are at right now have to do with confidence. And I just want to say unequivocally that I have confidence in this prime minister. I know him. I know what he believes in. I know that in spite of the past two weeks, that he has a profound respect for both Jody Wilson-Raybould and for Jane Philpott. This is doing huge damage to the prime minister's personal brand, but it's unclear that it's actually going to do anything to the horse race numbers. If you are going to write a political thriller, this is the, would be the worst thriller in history because here you've got her uh, making all of these points and what at the end of it she says, ultimately, there were 10 interventions over four months and nothing crossed the criminal, crossed the line into criminality. And it really, ultimately, this political thriller is just about a battle of egos around the cabinet table. Well, Tom, that's interesting Not because she... to see here, folks. All right, Sandy, you heard it there. They sound just so tired and exasperated. Everybody's tired of this damn thing. No laws were broken. Nothing to see here. The Associated Press ran This is what passes for a scandal in Canada. No laws broken, no sex, no crime even. Just some, just some bruised egos and people who maybe don't really understand how politics actually work. Can we please move on? Can we move on, Sandy? No, I don't think that we can move on. Not not yet. And, you know, the whole thing is just so frustrating. It wasn't laws that were broken. It was the Constitution that was broken. There is a constitutionally entrenched independence of the prosecutorial function. And that was underscored by the federal court ruling last week about whether or not SNC would be able to get judicial review. And the court said, no, 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 no. Just hands off. Don't even think about this. Where did you guys go to law school? Get out of town. And that's how the court dealt with this. And I'm stunned to hear people saying things like no laws were broken. And there's Christy Clark <laughs> saying, oh, it wasn't criminal. Like, this is the standard now. As if it's not criminal, it's not wrong. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, no, there's a there's a whole lot more to this. And uh, as I covered in the piece that I wrote about SNC-Lavalin's long history, it's very long history with issues surrounding bribery, corruption, many disciplinary or regulatory interventions, uh, many agreements with oversight agencies, including the World Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, lots of problems. So it's a bad corporate actor who is charged with bribing the Libyan regime, the family of Muammar Gaddafi in exchange for contracts. And to not to put too fine a point on it, but during this period that the alleged bribery was going on of a period of almost 10 years involving senior executives of the company. And as I was meaning to say, this regime was engaging in bloody acts of violence, including the individual who received the money, Muammar Gaddafi's son, who is directly implicated in murder in circumstances that it's impossible to imagine that SNC was unaware. You really excoriated SNC and this whole thing in this piece. Everybody, if, if you haven't read this piece in the National Observer, it was going around widely, but um, it really needs to be read. And even as somebody who's been kind of like immersed in this for like a month now, it definitely helped me get some context on on exactly what this is about at the root of it. And your piece spoke to like, this is not something to be shrugged off. This is not business as usual. Like if you actually want to talk about how deferred prosecutorial agreements actually go usually in places where they've had them for a while, then this case wouldn't qualify for one, would it? It wouldn't and it shouldn't. And one of the things that I think that everybody needs to bear in mind is don't take the director of public prosecution's expertise lightly. This is the most senior crown attorney in the country, extremely experienced, dealing with new legislation. This is Kathleen Roussel. She will have reviewed the nature and purpose of the legislation, what it is for, how it is functioning or comparable legislation is functioning in other jurisdictions, including the UK and the United States, and trying to develop a policy and approach for the Canadian guidelines for the DPA agreements. I This case would not have been reviewed in isolation from other potential cases or perhaps charges that are expected to be laid with other companies. This is not a one-off kind of case where she tossed off an opinion. Uh, she would have looked at the origin of the legislation, which came out of the OECD anti-bribery convention. Uh, she may have obtained expertise, expert advice about OECD, see practices. And then she would have looked at the circumstances of this particular case, the allegations. And the most important thing that Canadians have to remember is that she had the full criminal file in front of her. She knows all of the evidence, all of the allegations. We do not. We have media reports on a basically a rough thumbnail sketch of the circumstances. We don't know what she has. Neither does Justin Trudeau and neither does Gerald Butts. So here you've got the prosecutor who knows what the cops have on SNC-Lavalin, and it really underscores the arrogance of these people, you know, leaning on Raybould again and again and again, not knowing what SNC-Lavalin did in full. I mean, you spell it out like 
she must consider, this is based on the Canadian Criminal Code, if she's trying to determine whether or not to grant them a DPA, she has to, even with what we do know about what they've done, the questions she has to ask are, did they self-report their alleged fraud or was it something that other people hauled them in on? They did not self-report. Uh, the nature and the gravity of the offenses, as you write, they're pretty fucking serious. The involvement of senior officers in the company, like how high up in the company does this go? It went to the top. Whether the organization has entered into a previous remediation agreement for similar conduct, like is this a first offense or is this an isolated incident or have they been doing it for years? They've been doing it for years and years. And then you actually delve into the content of the corruption with Lavalin. And, and you know, sometimes, Sandy, you know, you're, you're thorough in your documentation, but sometimes it's a photograph that really drives the point home. And the photograph of Saadi Gaddafi, who basically installed himself on Libya's soccer team, though he didn't have the talent to play at a professional level uh, because of who he was, wearing an SNC-Lavalin jersey, right? And the context that this is a guy who had his coach murdered, who when, when the referee made a call in his favor and got booed, his thugs opened fire on the crowd, killing like dozens of people. These are like the most bloodthirsty, despicable despots. And this Canadian company was putting millions of dollars in his pocket. And taking the profits from these contracts. These were clear. The allegation is that there was a clear quid pro quo that along came billions of dollars in major project profits, including for a prison. And one of the other factors that the prosecutor must take into account, which would be an absolute bar to granting a DPA, was whether anyone was hurt or killed or whether the money went to support an organized crime or criminal or terrorist organization. Now, that link might be a little bit tenuous in the sense that it's not like bribing regulators to let you go on a bridge construction and your bridge falls down and killing people. I think that was the purpose of the legislation. But it's look at how close this nexus is to violence, to brutality. Mm -hmm. uh, that's I mean, these are all things that the prosecutor is required by law to consider. Do you know something that you brought to my attention that they are not allowed to consider? Jobs. This was established in a British case, and you know we, have, I guess, the case history. We have to look to where the, how this has played out elsewhere in the world, and it's all, I guess, under the same legal thinking under the OECD. Like signatory countries basically have to play by the same rules. You can correct me where if I've got this off base, but in a case of Rolls Royce, the fact that they were a major employer explicitly was not to be considered, and I can understand why because if the number of jobs that a company provides is a factor, then the more jobs, the more people you employ, the lower your liability would be. Like, like the less criminal consequences would apply to you, which doesn't make any sense at all. That's the paradox, isn't it? Is that this would let off the worst actors and we'd be ending up punishing the smaller players that didn't have as much impact. This is a really technical and kind of delicate area. So the legislation explicitly says that the prosecutor must not consider the national economic interest. But then in the legislation, in sort of the preamble where the legislation addresses the nature and purpose of the legislation, it does say that the purpose of the legislation generally, overall, 
one of the purposes is to mitigate harm uh, against innocent third parties, and it, and, and it lists employees and pensioners and other people who might be affected. And that is to be interpreted as an overall objective, but it is not one of the conditions that prosecutors are meant to consider in each individual case. I understand in theory what that means. In practice, I'm kind of curious how you would kind of, you know, weigh that but not weigh it. In any event, like just with the tests that are explicit and what we already explicitly know, it just doesn't seem like this is a good candidate for a DPA. And then, of course, there's everything that we don't know. It is all up against this counter narrative. And I want to talk about the counter narrative. And we heard a lot of that counter narrative that has, you know, Gerald Butts won't say a negative word about Jody Wilson-Raybould. And and Justin Trudeau is very careful. He knows that's just toxic for him to actually lash out at her in any way. And yet we are receiving another story and we're receiving it through Christy Clark. We're receiving it through Sheila Copps, who says, well, if these were Aboriginal jobs, I'm sure she wouldn't Mm -hmm. have any problem. Um, And she also said, uh, you know, I don't think the prime minister ever used the word bitch, even though it might apply. I think tacitly calling uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould and Dave Philpott. (laughs) I mean, she denies it, but I don't know what other possible interpretation. I have received counter narrative. I can tell you, Sandy, that... A person I know who is sort of Liberal Party affiliated shopped an angle to me uh, that, in fact, the Globe and Mail, which has been, you know, first and foremost to this story and has been progressing it like pretty much every day, that, in fact, there's some sort of a civil war in the newsroom and that Sinclair Stewart, senior editor there, is determined to bring the Trudeau government down and the reporters are against him. And, you know, I look into everything that might be true. I looked into this. It didn't have the the whiff of truth about it because, of course, Robert Fife, who's one of the reporters on the story, is known as an aggressive and dogged reporter. I couldn't find anything to substantiate the idea that the newsroom of the Globe and Mail is divided about this. I felt like maybe I was being fed something here that might smell like a good Canada land story, but doesn't necessarily, you know, bear out. And then we have as well, didn't get a lot of attention as corrections usually don't. The original story was a Canadian press story that senior liberal officials speaking under guise of anonymity were calling into question Jody Wilson-Raybould's character, whether she was a team player, whether she really knew what she was doing. And very quietly, the Canadian press apologized for that. And they issued this uh, statement uh, saying that, you know, our rule book states that you're not supposed to use anonymous sources on matters of opinion, you know, just anonymously smearing someone. We're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to use anonymous sources, I'll say this, if they are the same people who the story is about, you know, in in Mm -hmm. many circumstances, you know, if you are covering Justin Trudeau or Gerald Butts and then they are the ones, let's let's say theoretically they are your senior liberal sources. Uh, I I don't think any journalist should be running that as an anonymous source. Mm -hmm. No clarity from the Canadian press if that might be a reason as to why they broke their own rules here. It is clear that there is a kind of a consistent counter narrative that has been shopped and that a lot of Canadians, I think, are responding to that that, uh, Ray Bull just wasn't grown up enough in politics to understand that this is how the game is played. I don't think that this will be done until we know how that counter narrative got out there and how much organization and coordination. I mean, that's, of course, the angle that I'm interested in because I'm interested in how meaning is made and how media conveys messages. The liberals would have a real tricky puzzle in how do they introduce this very negative story about Jody Wilson-Raybould when they are hamstrung from doing so overtly and on the record. Were these just people who consider themselves Liberal Party affiliated taking it upon themselves? Did Sheila Copps just say, I'm going to say these atrocious things just because I feel like it? 
while I pressure cook some octopus, which is why she had to cut an interview with Huffington Post short? Or was there any kind of a wink from anybody that, you know, released the, the attackers here? Let's get this message out somehow. And isn't it interesting that when they sent in the clowns, which is how I think of Sheila Copps and uh, Christy Clark on this one, they sent the women, right? Yeah. That to me was one of the biggest tells that these are the ambassadors going out. But they really. If they were sent, which uh, is certainly yeah. a reasonable hypothesis. Yes. But, uh, well, I, okay, I'll take that back. But it, it is interesting that the people who. Uh, have led the charge here publicly are women, but they haven't done a very good job of it. I mean, I think that that it's um, a rubber and glue situation with them. One of the things that has concerned me about these character assassination attempts, and by the way, we know that they work with women, right? We know that women, and especially women of color, are especially vulnerable to personal smearing that will stick in a way that it wouldn't necessarily stick with a man and or especially with a white man. And um, one of the things that I think that Canadians really need to bear in mind is that Jody Wilson-Raybould's job as attorney general was not to look at the case and for her to consider all of these different factors. That is what the director of public prosecution's job is. Jody Wilson-Raybould's job as attorney general was to review the determination of the DPP and to decide, has the DPP made any material errors that would lead me to intervene in her decision and overturn it? And as has been pointed out multiple times, no attorney general since the DPP role has was established eight years ago, no attorney general has ever intervened and overruled the DPP. So it would be an extremely unusual case to do it. And as I hope that my article points out, there's every reason to think that that was an entirely proper opinion and a proper determination. And it's just like, it's, it's, it's just shocking how quickly and how personal it got. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know, I think that one thing that kind of came out of this is the Canadian impulse to always try to force things back to status quo and to try to kind of rationalize and settle matters. In this case, when you look at the big picture of it, you're like, why are we struggling so hard to pin this on one personality or talk about how this is an anomaly or, or shrug this off? Why is it so important to so many people to settle matters when in fact, what has been revealed here is really dire and really important. I think there's certainly an honorable um, motivation to some degree in the defense reflex that has kicked in, which is the fear that we're going to go back. It's about the election coming up and the fear yeah. that this is going to swing back and now we're going to end up with the conservatives and, oh my God, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire or worse. I feel like that's a really big part of this, that had this been early days in the Trudeau government, it wouldn't have had the extreme sting that it has right now. Well, this is something that comes up a lot over here. And it's interesting to see at a certain point, a lot of people start coming at me online and saying, you know, like, like what do you want Andrew Scheer to be in office? And like, mm -hmm. of course, I'm not trying to push for any kind of outcome like that. But it does betray to me. I'm like, my thought when those types of arguments are made, I'm like, well, I guess you're just so fundamentally 
opposed to any other kind of like, you know, I can understand that fear yet. Does that mean that there's nothing this government could do to lose your support? Like, I'm just like, and in which case, to what extent is this actually a democracy? And here's the, the harm is that this story isn't over yet. As this government has made clear, the new Attorney General Lametti might go back and renew and review and away we go with a new DPA, which raises the question. So this is still a live issue. This isn't about pouring over an old story. This is continuing. And I'm very concerned that there is continuing pressure and continuing political interference in the role of the Attorney General. And that that's a matter of concern for Canadians. But further, it raises the question, if you would grant a DPA here for this company with these, with the senior executives that were involved over a long period of 10 years, $50 million in bribes to a corrupt and brutal regime, helping to enable and keep that regime in power, if you would grant a DPA here, then who wouldn't you grant a DPA for? One thing that I think has been rigorously challenged, and I'm glad that it has been, is the media has been a bit too credulous initially that 9,000 jobs would be lost. Yeah. And that's that's turning out to be not, not really founded. So yeah. if this isn't about protecting jobs, what is it about? You know, I, th- I think we're like when we, when you get mm-hmm. to the heart of crony capitalism, it's it's the crony part that's particularly affecting Canada. It's not that any big company or any you know job provider would necessarily qualify. It's that there's a short list of buddies. And, you know, everybody keeps pointing to the mandatory 10-year debarment under uh, federal procurement rules under the integrity regime. And as the National Observer reported, I think, two days ago, SNC-Lavalin has already negotiated a relaxation of the integrity regime going into trial. They did it in 2015, and they've been operating on an exemption already for the last three and some years. So this is highly special speculative and specious, this argument about jobs. And I do believe, having looked at the circumstances of this case, that SNC-Lavalin is extremely concerned about evidence that will be entered into the public realm if this goes to trial. I don't think this is really about their concern over fines or punitive measures or what the sentence will be. I think they're concerned about the damage to them when this evidence hits headlines. The fact that media pass right uh, right by the, the people whose human rights abuses uh, were not told by the media for decades to other stories of the day is still a reflection on the work that needs to happen on reconciliation. The Inuit who are apologized today matter. This story matters. It is a Canadian story. And I recognize that there are other media stories that matter as well. But I do hope in the future there can be more respect given to the place and time and the people who deserve to have their story told uh, and the media that have a a, a strong role to play to, to, uh, to tell it. Okay, that was Natan Obed, who is the president of ITK, Inuit Tapirat Kanatami, uh, which literally means Inuit United with Canada. And what he was talking about was that after Trudeau delivered this long-awaited historic apology to the Inuit, the media ignored that completely and peppered the prime minister with questions about the SNC-Lavalin scandal. What did you make of that? 
Well, I think I think it's true. And I think it's very easy for media to lose sight of the importance of some of these occasions. Reconciliation is a primary objective, not only of this government, it should be a primary objective of this country and of the people in it. And it should be a primary objective of media. I, you know, this brought to mind, I was actually in the House of Commons on the day of the Komagata Maru apology relating to the South Asian community over the expulsion of South Asians who came. And that was the day of the elbow gate. And so no sooner had the apology been made, and then there was going to be coverage of it. And there was going to be there were going to be other events around it. And it was totally wiped off the pages. It was entirely wiped off the pages by the NDP then then pursuing the wild claims about Elbowgate. So I am I have complete sympathy and concern that we are losing sight. You know, we're not seeing the forest for the trees. There are occasions, there are moments where it's important for media and for the press to just focus on what's in front of us at this time. Wow, Elbowgate. Those are more innocent times. I'd forgotten about <laughs> Elbowgate. Look, I agree. Who could really reasonably say otherwise? But there is more to this, as uh, Les Perot, reporter for the Globe and Mail, pointed out. The government is, you know, this is a bad look for the media to be going right for the scandal while something really severe and serious is happening. But the media is not acting in a vacuum. The government has a role to play. This all is happening in the midst of the biggest scandal this government has faced. And Les mm -hmm. tweeted, you know, a few days earlier, the prime minister made a space announcement in front of space center workers, and then he took five questions. That was right in the middle of a cabinet crisis. So when the government is not providing much accountability, not rigorously answering questions, only providing press availability in other contexts that make government look good, to a certain extent, I would say they're forcing journalists' hands. And we have to be maybe even more concerned with getting answers for a rapidly unfolding scandal than we are with being, than propriety or even kindness. You know, there is another way this could go down. Well, I don't, I, I'm going to argue with this about propriety or kindness. This isn't about kindness. This is about justice. And I think there is a strong obligation on the part of the media to respect the moment. There's been been, we've had four weeks of this coverage. There's been multiple appearances by the Prime Minister on the subject of the SNC-Lavalin case. And come on, how much is anybody going to get out of him in one of in a press conference? We all know where he is on this stuff, which is that he's bungled this file. How much difference does it make to stand and ask him more questions about bungling this file? and ignore something that actually is has momentous impact on Canada. Well, I am bungling this file. Look, I'm not <laughs> saying that it was cool for the journalists, uh, I, even though it sort of sounded like my No, I think it was not good that the journalists uh, ignored what was happening and, and just went right to the scandal. I, I don't think they should have done it, and I would have, I would hope that in that situation... I would have been a bit more respectful for this historic moment that was unfolding before my eyes. I well, also respect it. But here's the thing, okay... Les Perot also pointed out that there is a way government can accommodate this and they have a role to play in this. Premiers in Quebec, he, he mm -hmm. points out, sometimes will have a second press meetup and the implicit mm -hmm. bargain to reporters is please stay on topic for the first presser. And if there are questions about something else that is front of mind for you, I will make myself available for that after. So we can basically have a partnership to respect what is happening here. 
I think that if we That's can fair. imagine that the PMO is being very careful about availability and has a vested interest in not being accountable or answering those questions, then I do think it's the press's job to push back against that and answer questions okay. when, when they can. But it's, you know, this was not the right time. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's BetterHelp.com slash CanadaLand. Duly noted. Sandy, what do you got? Well, one thing I've got on this on Duly Noted is I want to play a clip of Christy Clark that we heard earlier this week. I mean, yeah, they, you know, everybody will argue they shouldn't have gone about it the way that they did and all that. But at the end of the day, if you're talking about 9,000 jobs and the attorney general is refusing to save them, um, I don't know. I mean, if I, I think that's a pretty good argument to move the attorney general and find somebody who wants to support a growing economy. There you go. I mean, apart from the sheer boneheaded reality of that display, that was like a textbook case of how to politically interfere in the role of the attorney general. But apart from that, Christy Clark, when she was premier of British Columbia and when she was leader of the BC Liberal Party, her primary and key donor and fundraiser mentor and advisor was Gwyn Morgan, who is the, was the chair at the material time of SNC-Lavalon. And it was a former staffer, Ben Jin, who was, who moved over to become Bill Morneau's chief of staff and was one of the first people who was making contact with the attorney general about the SNC-Lavalon case and seeking a DPA. And 
I think that this connection should be disclosed. I just don't see a rationale for Christy Clark being on national television banging the drum for the Prime Minister without disclosure of her close relationship with someone who is uh, involved, deeply involved as former chair of the board with the company in question. Duly noted. Sandy, I would like to duly note an exclusive story broken by the rebel. We discovered where convicted terrorist murderer Omar Khadr has hidden at least $3 million of his $10 million payout that he received from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. What's described as a shopping center, but it's really an aging strip mall in an aging neighborhood in North Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. One of the two purchasers of the property for $3 million cash, might I add, is a numbered Alberta company. The director of that company is named as Omar Cotter with a street address in West Edmonton. Now here's my promise to all of you. If Omar Cotter moves this money, I will do everything I can to find it again. And I will do my best to find that other $7 million. And if you have a tip, please send it to tips at the I'll chase them down ferociously, and we'll keep you anonymous. This isn't the end of this story. Well, Sandy, we here at Canada Land are not above following a story that another organization breaks and adding to the ongoing narrative. And uh, I can now report exclusively that Canada Land has learned that Omar Cotter has bought a Subway sandwich. He ordered double meat on his Subway sandwich. That money rightfully belongs to others. Uh, he, he has been hiding his money in a foot-long Subway sandwich. And uh, we will doggedly pursue this story until we account for the uh, the other $7 million. Do not eat. That's the that's the rationale here. Everybody take your lesson. I, oh, my God. Well, duly noted. You're just, you're goading me with this, aren't you? Because you know what I think about the Cotter case. But anyway. No, I mean, look, they're going to hound this guy for the rest of his life. And it's not just the rebel. The National Post picked up this story. I mean, it's, it's, it's just this ridiculous narrative. First, he's hiding the money. He's investing the money in real estate in Edmonton, um, apparently in a neighborhood that could use the investment. It's called a shopping center, but in reality, it's a strip mall. It's across the street from a primary school, for God's sakes. Just the sinister implications of this uh, breathless report. What did they think he was going to do? He needs better financial advice. Nobody should be buying strip malls in this day and age. (laughs) (laughs) The Post sent a reporter to the strip mall. Uh, This is the quote I entered. At the auto shop, a manager who declined to give his name said that he had not met the landlord either, but questioned why the media continued to hound Cotter. And then the Post uh, editor's note, the National Post has edited this piece over safety concerns. Already, the strip mall is getting like just disgusting, (sighs) nasty comments. The boycott this terrorist shopping center. Like these business owners uh, have nothing to do with like, you know, what is this? What is uh, the the point of this? It's Pizzagate. It's Pizzagate all over again. Soon there will be hearing about they're going to be doing sacrifices at the strip mall. Don't quote me. Duly noted. Oh, Sandy, I have one more I want to do. Do you have a minute? Can I do one more? Can I note something? Yeah. This guy who I, I knew as uh, a Twitter account, Chef Grant Soto, died. The guy's real name was Taylor Clark. And I was like a minute just to, to remember this guy as I knew him. It turns out that this Chef Grant Soto 
Twitter account, which was pretty hilarious. It was like a fake celebrity chef. And it turned out that this was a promotional, he was trying to get a TV series. He was, Taylor Clark was writing a satirical TV show about a, uh, a pompous Toronto chef. And he he started up this Twitter account as sort of like a continuation of the character. And the TV show, I think, never got made. But the Twitter account took off and became like a really funny site making fun of food trends and food personalities. And then he kind of morphed into uh, like an Instagram account that made fun not just of the food scene, but of Torontonians in general. And I was just an appreciator of this guy. He would post these Instagram pictures of various kind of Toronto types. And he just was like merciless in the way he would kind of skewer different um, personas. I'm going to read this one. There's like this like picture of this beautiful young woman holding a ukulele, like an Instagram selfie. And uh, the text read, hi, smiley face. I'm the singer slash actress slash model who loves posting ukulele covers. I come from a loving and a little too supportive home where I was constantly told how talented I was, and this has been reinforced in adulthood by thirsty dudes on the gram. As a result, I subject my friends and family to hearing me butcher classics by Neil Young, Joni Mitchell, and when I've had too many shots, my bold reimagining of Cardi B's Bodak Yellow ukulele folk style. Um, I was like... It, he had like a like a dozen of those. That, they're all very funny. Uh-huh. They're all very mean, and they're all very well observed. And he didn't just make fun of people; he also would kind of like find out stuff and point it out. He found out that like um, Susser Lee's staff were getting like deducted tips if they broke a plate mm-hmm. or something. And then he contrasted that with pictures of Susser Lee's kids like posing you know, as they were on massive shopping sprees or posing in front of luxury cars. Um, and that mm. led to Susser Lee, you know, reversing that policy and paying everybody back. So, you know, I, I corresponded with Taylor Clark, Chef Grant Soto, just a few times through Twitter. And I just felt like this was a guy who had a lot to offer, who was very funny and who was very, a very keen observer and who was sort of unrealized. And I I don't know him personally, but I know he was trying to get various things happening, trying to get this TV show or, you know, and, and he, he died of an apparent overdose and it's been reported as a heroin overdose. And, you know, I know people who work with addicts and they tell me that it's, it's hard to even find heroin anymore. And if you do, it probably has fentanyl in it. It's just a waste. And it was a particular, it was a particularly Canadian, you know, waste of, of potential in that I felt like this guy, he should have been a bigger deal for how good he was mm-hmm. at what he was doing. And mm-hmm. he was giving away all this stuff for free. And, you know, like it, it never kind of cracked through and became a way that he could, um, it never became a way that he was able to sustain himself or reach a large audience or just get compensated for his creativity and, and really, in some cases, for his journalism. Now you make me miss somebody I never knew about. But what a good send off and what a good recognition of Taylor Clark. Check out his uh, his Instagram, Chef Grant Soto, or his Twitter. Uh, all that funny stuff is up there. Duly noted. Sandy, it's funny that you should mention Pizzagate. <laughs> this is what happened during a public event where Andrew Shear was taking questions from the crowd. Okay, what's one more thing? And this is going to be a shock for a lot of people here. This is investigated and it's well documented. Trudeau gave $600 million to the Clinton Foundation. The Clinton Foundation is part of child trafficking and child sacrifice. If you, if you, if you study it, it's in the pizza game. And how do we get that money back? I appreciate, uh, appreciate your concerns on this, and we obviously just uh, had a, a question on the priorities of this Liberal government, and I can assure you that when you look at uh, where Justin Trudeau had... So... Andrew Shear says he didn't hear the guy. He answered the question, 
as politicians often do, the question they want to answer, not the question they were asked. It's very clear in the question, the guy says, Trudeau gave $600 million to the Clinton Foundation. Andrew Scheer heard that part. He responded back about the Clinton Foundation. But then the question asker said, the Clinton Foundation is part of child trafficking and child sacrifice. If you study it, it's in the Pizzagate. So Scheer took the part of that that he wanted to respond to, which is about uh, Trudeau funding his personal pet initiatives and giving money to the Clintons, and just acted like the other stuff was never said, and then has since claimed that he didn't hear that stuff, and also that he's not even familiar with Pizzagate. I don't know how anyone remotely connected to politics would not be aware of the whole Pizzagate thing at this point, but that's Scheer's story. Do you buy it? Oh, I mean, it's a joke for anybody to think that that could possibly be true. Everybody in politics knows what Pizzagate is. Nobody should be in politics if they don't know what Pizzagate is, because it's this is such a critical issue. It's all around the whole business of fake news. I'm looking right now at a screen cap of I've got there's Alex Jones of Infowars saying, when he thinks about all the children that Hillary Clinton has personally murdered and chopped up and raped, he has zero fear. Well, first of all, one of the things that's important here is that rebel media was involved in, not involved in Pizzagate, but their Washington bureau chief, Jack Posobiec, was one of the perpetrators of Pizzagate. He was one of the people who was propelling this through the internet. And mm -hmm. of course, as we know, Rebel Media's, one of their founding directors was Hamish Marshall. Who's Hamish Marshall? He was Andrew Scheer's campaign director when he was running for the leadership of the party, and he is now the campaign director for the Conservative Party of Canada. It is ludicrous for anybody to buy for five seconds that Andrew Scheer doesn't know about Pizzagate, doesn't know about any of this stuff. And also, if you look at the clip, the people right behind him are nodding in agreement. They know what yeah. Pizzagate is and they heard perfectly well. So I think he's not telling the truth. He's not telling the truth to Canadians. And he's got to come out against this. He has a he has a moral obligation and a political obligation to come out and speak strongly and squarely and address this and put it to rest. I mean, I think he's tried to do that since this pressure has mounted. They've come forth again with a, a story saying, OK, Pizzagate is ridiculous and dangerous. Uh, Shear's office has said to the Toronto Star. But the question, of course, is not whether or not Andrew Shear has heard of Pizzagate or had heard about it at the time. The question yeah. is, does he want the support of conspiracy theory fueled zealots who are potentially very violent and dangerous? Or is it his role to correct them of their weird fantasies. And, you know, when John McCain was politicking against Barack Obama and met one of these conspiracy mm -hmm. theorists at some sort of town hall who said, he's not a real American, he's a Muslim, John McCain corrected her kind of unfortunately mm -hmm. he, the way he did so. He said, no, no, he's not a Muslim, he's a good American. <laughs> he's a good uh, American okay. you can't be both. <laughs> you know, can we, can we give partial credit? The fact, like, that's kind of fucked up. But the fact is... When even one of McCain's supporters was lashing out at Obama with lies, even though McCain was locked in in this competition yeah. with Barack Obama, he did see it as his role to say, no, that's not true. And so, so I think that this is something that we're going to – this is a question for conservatives as we go into this next election is like, whose votes do you want? Is it just anybody? Will you take any vote based on any kind of fantasy? Or is it your role maybe to – 
disabuse people of some of their ideas and correct certain notions and take some responsibility for the increasingly ludicrous and violent political culture. And they're, of course, politically terrified because they've got Maxime Bernier. There's a there's a downside risk for the Conservative Party of Canada for confronting the lies and the abuse of propaganda, which is dangerous. We know it's dangerous. Somebody tried to shoot up that pizza parlor in Washington, D.C. We've had uh, Alexandre Bissonnette, uh, who was riled up and ginned up by this online propaganda who went out and, and killed six Muslims at prayer in Quebec. We've had examples. We know how dangerous this is. But Sheer appears to be afraid that it's going to cost him politically to confront it, which is, uh, this is his challenge. This And this will be one of the primary election issues, I think. You know, that is a challenge. If, if, if you put yourself in the shoes of a conservative strategist, the, kind of the only way he has a chance in hell is if he can harness that uh, populist right-wing rising tide, you know? And, and mm-hmm. he, he that's a, an advantage that Bernier had over him. I mean, you know, I'll say this again. You know, Bernier came within, within a, a hair of winning conservative party leadership. And I think if he had, then he would be the next prime minister because he has no moral qualms. And also he wears it better than Scheer as he embraces these nuts, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but Scheer is sort of stuck in the middle. He doesn't want those votes being stripped away from him by Bernier. He needs that support. He needs those votes. But what's he willing to do to get them? And what's going to happen to the rest of us if he moves closer towards them? I hate thinking of Andrew Scheer as somebody who's in the middle of anything. You know, if you're talking about where the center is, I mean, that is not it. But that's where we are. All right, Sandy, that is Canada Land Shortcuts for this week. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me for it. Thanks so much. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything that you send me. We are on Twitter at Canadaland. Sandy Garasino, where can people find you? They can find me on Twitter at Garasino and, of course, National Observer. We have a website. It's canadalandshow.com. There is a fresh new episode of Oppo up this week. It finally untangled for me the Admiral Norman shipbuilding scandal, that other whole scandal that I've just been kind of avoiding because it's very complicated. Justin Ling explained it to me. God bless his soul. This episode is produced by David Crosby. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. You can visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you would appreciate ad-free versions of our podcast, you can get them with five bucks a month or more at patreon.com slash CanadaLand. That is where you can support us. Please do. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.